KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Eurasia Group is out with its 2021 annual forecast of the political risks that are most likely to play out across the globe over the course of the year. It's top risks. Now, it's a very smart report. It's a little scary, but it's important. And we wanted to talk about it, so we reached out to David Livingston. He is a senior analyst for the Eurasia Group. I'd like to start just for people that aren't familiar. Uh, give us a quick primer on the Eurasia Group. What What is it all about? The Eurasia Group is a leading uh, geopolitical risk firm based in New York, Washington, D.C., London, Brazil, Japan, all around the world. We assess how politics uh, affects the global economy and markets, and we uh, assess global risks. And we've just come out with our annual top risk publication that looks at the 10 big risks to keep an eye on this year. To that point and what we're going to talk about, uh, how was this put together? Is this kind of a brainstorming session? Uh, it's not something where like votes are tabulated. It's more of a, a conversation that you guys kind of put this together. That's right. It's a it's a very discursive and, and consensus building exercise. And there's a lot of back and forth and taking an idea and, and sort of, you know, kneading it like a piece of dough until you really feel like you've gotten to the kernel of of the dynamic that that you're that you're trying to put a, a spotlight on, and so it, it basically involves many months of conversations across our firm uh, among some of the you know our, our absolute best analysts and experts. You know, we we red team and we stress test all of our theories and ideas, and those that you know basically kind of stand the test of time over those subsequent months end up becoming our top risks for the year. So let's talk about the risk at the top of the list and the attempted insurrection at the Capitol kind of plays right into your top risk, no? Absolutely. I mean, the the key message, if nothing else, from this year's top risk list, which was unfortunately put on you know vibrant and raw display in Washington, D.C., is the fact that the U.S. is on the one hand still the world's most powerful industrial democracy. And yet it's also the most politically divided and economically unequal, and one would argue culturally polarized uh, of all the industrial democracies. Um, We have a difficulty arriving and agreeing even on the the same set of facts to debate, uh, let alone arriving at consensus on on any given set of facts. Um, And so, you know, our, our top risk is 46 asterisk. What that's meant to say is the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden, will become president in an environment in which he was rightfully legally elected with a significant margin of the popular vote. And yet he will be viewed by a large swath of the country, uh, many of those who support you know, President Trump, as an illegitimate president because of the dissemination of misinformation, conspiracy theory, uh, inaccurate uh, articulation of, of facts about the electoral process and, and the electoral outcome. And this will have a knock-on effect that will even taint you know, some of the uh, you know, members of Congress um, and, and will create a dynamic in which it is increasingly difficult for the U.S. president, in this case, President-elect Biden, to govern. How are some ways that this could manifest itself? You say making it difficult for Joe Biden to govern, but we saw 
a much more, I think, tangible result uh, on Wednesday. How are some other ways you're concerned we could see this risk elevate and executed? Absolutely. So, look, you're going to have, regard, even though um, Democrats were able to win both Georgia races, which was significant because it does give Democrats nominal control of the Senate by a very, very thin margin with the obviously a 50-50 split and the vice president-elect Vice President-elect Harris providing the the decisive you know vote there, despite a narrow narrow margin for uh, Democrats in the Senate, they're going to face an uphill battle on many issues, from addressing some of Trump's tax cuts for the very wealthy to addressing some of their ambitions on infrastructure spending, you know, green infrastructure, um, addressing climate change, healthcare reform, um, and a variety of other issues. They're, you know, going to still have to fight for votes. It's a, it's a very divided Congress, um, and uh, on a number of issues, they're going to need more than a simple majority. And on some issues, you're going to have some moderate to conservative Democrats, uh, individuals like Senator Manchin from West Virginia, who are not going to go along with um, uh, perhaps the the starting bid of the the Democratic Party or you know of the administration. And so there's going to be some negotiating process that's going to have to go on. Now, the broader and more corrosive challenge here is the fact that Trump will continue to loom large in the Republican Party and may very well continue to hold hostage significant parts of the Republican Party, perhaps from a perch, you know, uh, having his own network or TV show or, or, or something similar to this. What that does is it raises the specter that Trump or a, you know, a, a chosen successor to Trump could be elected in 2024. And so what that does is it throws a bit of a, uh, of a shadow and a question on um, some of the foreign policy moves that the Biden administration might take. Because if you're a foreign leader sitting in another capital, um, you, you want to know that when the United States is giving you its word and, and giving you its commitment, that, that you can count on that staying in place for you know more than more than just 2024. And so the it's going to take some creative diplomacy and some some creative governing on the on the part of the the Biden administration um to be able to navigate some of those more corrosive dynamics uh caused by the the lingering specter of Trump. Do you think going along looking at the the risk factors from a more violent standpoint do you think uh, that is a significant concern that we could see maybe not as high profile as what we saw uh, on Wednesday, but could that be something that's always going to be waiting in the wings given our political moment and no apparent real uh, attempt to turn down the temperature? It's always difficult to predict political violence, and we don't purport to make that uh, a, a an element of our of our predictions or our forecast for the year. But it's fair to say that the degree of polarization the uh, the seeding of doubt as to the you know rightful legitimacy of the president elect, and the uh, kind of expansion of the window of what is tacitly considered acceptable in political discourse and political behavior, increases the risk of more direct confrontation, direct conflict, and kinetic political violence in the future. Obviously, this is one of the most you know, alarming aspects you could see uh, and, and, and one of the most alarming you know, symptoms of our political polarization. And of course, we hope that doesn't materialize. But we have to 
we have to reckon with ourselves and and of course be 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 very frank and honest uh, and honest not just as analysts but as Americans that this is a rising risk in the United States. The second item on the list is what you refer to as the list refers to as long covid and reading this I'm guessing this is obviously the pandemic is awful but the the concern of the long term effects even once say everybody's vaccinated of people that were sick, maybe the strain on the healthcare system, kind of explain what you mean by this. Absolutely. Um, so long COVID is, of course, to, to, to contextualize the, the title of the risk. It's, of course, the, the term of art for those that have lingering symptoms, um, even after they've recovered from catching COVID-19. Now, we've, we view this as, as also uh, very descriptive of what we're going to see in terms of the systemic and structural effects on the global economy and on global politics from COVID-19 and its, and its various side effects. COVID-19 will last with us. Its, its wide-ranging impacts are not going to disappear. We're going to see that in a couple of different ways. Number one, we're going to see a what some economists call a K-shaped recovery within countries. We already have seen that low-income, minority, and oftentimes female communities within countries have been the hardest hit. They've had the highest levels of unemployment. They are overrepresented in terms of their status as frontline workers, um, and they have suffered the most from the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, not to mention the direct health impacts, of course. We know that the the pandemic has hit certain minority communities the hardest. And of course, service sector workers, it goes without saying, are, are, are harder hit in many of these circumstances, especially frontline service sector workers. There's also going to be a K-shaped recovery among countries. This is to say that certain countries, uh, including the United States, um, the EU as a broader economic bloc, not a country, of course, but a, but a broader economic community and set of countries, are more well-equipped, as are many in Northeast Asia, like Japan, to deal with these lingering symptoms of COVID-19, these lingering economic impacts of COVID-19, than are many emerging markets. Why? Well, they have a greater ability to borrow from international markets without having their debt increase in cost significantly as they borrow more to cover different deficits, to provide additional stimulus to support frontline workers and vulnerable communities, et cetera. They have more creative monetary policy and more capable monetary policy, of course. And they've also put in place already stimulus measures, which are going to be realized in 2021. So the U.S. passed a major stimulus package and is already looking at more stimulus under a Biden administration. There's some talk of the $600 per per individual being increased to $2,000 per individual. Now the Democrats control the Senate. Japan is is increasing its stimulus to counteract its third wave of COVID-19. And of course, the EU had a, a watershed moment with its recovery fund, which will deploy significant sums of fiscal stimulus in the second half of 2021. This contrasts strongly with emerging markets, where the they've already borrowed, um, in many cases, close up to the to their limits without causing a spike in the in the yield on their debt. Um, and there's going to be more scrutiny from international markets and international investors of emerging market countries in 2021. This is going to give them just less space to operate, less space to try and offset some of those negative economic impacts of COVID-19. So we think it's a differentiation story this year. 
or you're going to see differentiation between developed markets and emerging markets in a way you didn't as much in 2020. I think it says a lot about the state of our world where what has been called by many like the overarching threat to mankind, climate change, comes in at number three on a list like this. But kind of explain, uh, pinpoint the concerns about climate change in general in this moment. Our number three risk this year is a paradox risk. We call it net zero meets G zero. It's a paradox because on the one hand, if you're just reading some of the headlines, you're going to feel very optimistic about the planet's ability to rise and meet the challenge posed by climate change. You're going to see countries announcing ambitious new net zero emissions goals. Many of those new announcements will come at the UN climate conference in Glasgow at the, uh, toward the end of this year. Under President Biden, the United States will be rejoining the Paris Agreement. It will again emphasize a climate leadership role and put climate in a central position in U.S. foreign policy. And at home, of course, the U.S. will succeed in introducing aggressive new climate policy and enabling key leading states such as California to do the same. Globally, you'll see the EU introducing the details of a planned new carbon border tax Um, which will essentially internationalize the EU's carbon price. China will be introducing a carbon price for the first time this year. And you're going to see a variety of countries start to actually truly internalize climate policy and and some of the costs of climate change into their long-term planning. The paradox comes when you think about what this all means, the seriousness around climate change again. You might be tempted to think that that's an environment in which you will see increased global cooperation that it will create more harmony and coordination amongst countries. We think that's not necessarily the case. Instead, more likely, you're going to see greater competition. The climate and clean energy issue will go from being a niche or being a small but fast-growing policy area to being one that's at the front of mind for treasury departments, for finance ministries, for national security councils and agencies. That means it's going to be viewed through a lens in which it's integrally intertwined with with statecraft and with international competition among states. It means there's going to be more competition over who's going to be leading the commanding heights of the 21st century economy, solar, wind, batteries, new small nuclear reactors, um, carbon capture and storage technologies, you name it. There's going to be more and more competition to ensure that that's manufactured at home and that these and that countries are setting the standards along which these fast growing sectors develop. And so that's going to create contention. That's going to create competition. And that's ultimately going to create a lack of coordination that businesses and companies and and investors and even citizens are going to have to navigate in the years ahead. So it's a, it's a paradoxical risk, number three. Long term, we may be getting a bit more serious about climate change, but it doesn't mean that we can rest easy about the prospects for international cooperation and collaboration in this area. As you look at the rest of the lists, is there one that especially catches your eye, one that a little further down the list that you think is one that is really worth keeping an eye on? Absolutely. Let me give you one more that fits into a theme that we had this year. Uh, And that theme is really the global commons and the spillover of these risks across country borders where they aren't easily contained. We talked about COVID-19. We talked about climate change and the clean technology race. Now, the third in that global commons theme is cyber. 
and cybersecurity issues. I think this is a real uh, issue to keep an eye on this year. Cyber is, of course, a risk every year. It's a it's a evergreen risk, which is not going away anytime soon. So it's unfair to say that cyber is going to suddenly pop up and become a risk this year. It's been bubbling up for a long time. In fact, we've seen at the end of 2020, it was revealed the the the, the scope of the uh, intrusion by uh, what's believed to be a nation state actor and, and what intelligence seems to be pointing to is Russia into U.S. government agencies, into leading U.S. companies, including Microsoft, and into some software which is broadly distributed across you know, thousands, if not millions of computers um, across the United States. This was you know, uh, initially thought to be significant in scope, but the, the full breadth of that incursion, that cyber invasion and that, that, that cyber intrusion um, only expanded as we entered into this new year. We think this is going to be a, a key story that will play out over the course of this year. It will fall to the Biden administration to decide how it is going to respond appropriately to the revelations about the, the massive um, failures that, that led to this significant uh, incursion into U.S government and private sector systems. And, you know, when you combine this with some of the other things that are swirling around, of course, more threat surface area digitally than you've ever had before as a result of COVID-19. The fact that we're conducting this interview, not in person, uh, you know, but over Zoom, right over the internet, is reflective of how all of us have adapted our personal and professional lives to be increasingly digitized, not to mention our commerce and our spending all taking place online, carried across the internet. That vastly increases just the attractive threat surface area and the, the surface area of vulnerability that nefarious actors, whether state-affiliated actors or independent actors, can seek to attack. And so that combined with this notion that there has to be some sort of U.S. response, including most likely some element in the cyber realm, to the dramatic incursions against uh, U.S. companies and government agencies at the over the course of 2020, that, that's going to lead to a very fertile ground for unpredictable and asymmetric risks to pop up in the cyber realm over the course of this year. As a lame and broken down radio guy, this list terrifies me in its breadth and its scope in the way there's almost an interconnectivity. As someone who is waist deep in risk assessment, does this seem an especially daunting list overall or... Is the level usually as high, just the names and maybe the, the, the way it's portrayed change? I think the, the risks themselves aren't more scary than they are in a usual year, but there are some structural factors that should really give us pause and that I think you've captured are very unique. I highlighted that many of these risks are about the global commons, cyber, COVID, and a global pandemic recovery the economic fallout from that recovery and dealing with the debt burden that's been created and some of the economic uh, discontinuities that have been created from the COVID crisis, climate change, uh, and of course, cyber. All of those are cross-border issues that require global efforts to address, countries working together to address them. And yet our number one risk this year is the fact that we have a weakened and a inwardly conflicted United States. A United States that is turned against itself has difficulty leading the world. And it is not to say that the U.S. cannot and will not lead the world, but it will be more difficult. It will require more concerted effort than ever before as a new administration uh, takes power in Washington, D.C. 
And that, I think, is the real crux of the challenge that you see in these years, this year's risks, that so many of them are not contained within country borders and national borders, that they require strong global leadership, and that the U.S. is teetering on the brink and needs to refine its soul and, and rediscover its, its core and its commitment to a global approach to, uh, to mitigating these challenges. So that's what we're dealing with this year. It's, it's no small task. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.